Good evening. My name is Peggy, and I'm an alcoholic. When Dick called me several months ago and asked me to speak here, I really felt flattered, and uh, of course, having the ego that some of us alcoholics have, I was really, you know, I felt real good about it. And then I got the flyer concerning this weekend, and they had my name between Clancy and Ray, Ray O. So I called my sponsor up right away, and I said, you know, I don't know what I'm doing up there with these people. They're national speakers, and they've been all over. Here I'm just this little alcoholic from down in Fort Myers. And so she said to me, see, and, and my sponsor doesn't give me many compliments, but she said to me, Say, you live your program, and it will show. So I, I felt very flattered again. And then as I was driving up here today, I started to get nervous again. And uh, when Dick invited me to have dinner with he and his wife, and then Ray and Clancy came along, I thought, God, the inspiration is going to come from the great ones. <laughs> but, but, but I'm sorry, gentlemen, it didn't. <laughs> but when I but when I stood up to come and walk up to this platform or podium, I stopped and said hello to Eddie. And he said, Are you the speaker tonight? And I said yes and he said, God bless you, dear. And then then I felt good about it. Because it always ends up that I sweat it all out, I go through all these antics, and it ends up, it's always between God and I. That's been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. I always say that I'm sober tonight by the grace of God, because I didn't understand what God's grace was, but it worked in my life before I even got to my first AA meeting. I've been a member of the Fort Myers group in... uh, Fort Myers for almost 17 years. It'll be 17 years since I moved to Florida. And I only had one other home group before that was in Montreal where I got sober. So as you can see, I'm a sticker. I got into something that made me feel good. I got into something that I'm grateful I got into, and I stick with it. And that's uh, that's been my history in AA. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, a very sick person, and Alcoholics Anonymous has been good to me, and I hope I'll remain forever grateful. I was born in the eastern part of Canada, the youngest of eight children, and uh, probably a little bit spoiled, (laughs) and probably if you talk to my older brothers and sisters, they'd say quite a bit spoiled. And, you know, I used to resent that when I got to be a young adult. If I heard a woman saying, well, Faye, you know, you always got more than the rest. You were a little spoiled. And and I remember also, long before I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, one of my older sisters was speaking to then my new husband, and she said, she's a great girl, she's a bit spoiled, and a little immature. (laughs) And, you know, people kept telling me that, emotionally immature, and that's... That was something I hated to hear when I arrived. I hated to hear anybody say, like, you know, when Jack Alexander wrote that article for the Saturday Evening Post, he said he had 
met a lot of alcoholics at these meetings, but we had appeared to have one thing in common. Regardless of where we had started out in life or where we had ended up in life, we all appeared to have this emotional immaturity. And that was one thing I rejected very strongly when I arrived here. And usually something I rejected at the beginning is something that applied to me. I still have a problem with that today, folks. So I was born the youngest of eight children into a loving home. And, uh, but my, uh, earliest memories were of sitting at the, uh, and I was born with a nervous tremor in my hands. And I, uh, remember sitting at the dinner or supper table whenever we sat down to meals. And my mother always seemed to place things in front of me so I wouldn't have to reach out and this tremor wouldn't be noticeable. And you know, I got a, a real resentment about that because it, I thought it made me feel different. Today I realized my mother was doing that because she loved me and didn't want me to feel uncomfortable. And she did it out of the love she had for her children. And I was brought up in a home where there was no drinking. My, I got to realize that later on in life that my father did a fair amount of drinking, but it was not in front of the children. And looking back on it now, my dad used to, uh, used to have a wood-burning furnace in the basement, and at Christmas time, he seemed to make a lot of trips down there. <laughs> he would come up with a sort of a red face, and I used to think Daddy got too close to the fire. And I think Daddy got too close to the fire. <laughs> I'm the only one in the family that's admitted alcoholic. I have a brother that I think perhaps has had a problem with alcohol from time to time, but he does not admit that he's an alcoholic, and that is for him to decide. I have members of my family who don't drink, who have never had a drink, because we were brought up in a Baptist family. They don't all come from the South, and uh, and there was no drinking in our family. And uh, some of my sisters and brothers have lived their life that way all their life, and others are truly social drinkers. So I always think on this, you know, I don't know really what it means, except that I think I felt a little uneasy and insecure with myself from a very young adult. And I can't pinpoint any reason for this. In my early Early adulthood, I had what they called in those days a nervous breakdown, and I think today they would call it a, some sort of a clinical depression. And I had, uh, I got treatments for that, and I had uh, psychoanalysis, and it all helped temporarily. But shortly after that, I started to drink. In fact, I remember my first drink as well as I remember my last drink. And I'm here to tell you, that I never drank socially. I don't understand people who drink socially. I don't understand it today. When I'm sitting someplace and see somebody sipping on a drink all night, my inclination is to say, well, why don't you either drink it or put it away? You know, I don't understand it at all. It just escapes me. When I drank, I drank to get it down in me so it could make me feel different. It helped this uneasiness. By this time, I had gone to work in Montreal, and I came from a small town, 10,000 people. I think the town is still around 10,000 people. Not the same ones, but 
It's just about that size of a town. And I had gone to work in the city. I felt even more insecure and uneasy being brought up a small-town girl, and I was up here with these city girls and guys, and one night they had a shower for somebody either having a baby or getting married, and uh, Ray will probably remember, uh, we went to Mother Martin's for this celebration, because Ray remembers restaurants in Montreal. We went to Mother Martin's because they were a client of the bank that I was working for at the time. And I remember I had my first drink. It was an old-fashioned, in a typical old-fashioned glass, the vermouth and the rye. And I first, I never liked the taste of alcohol, but I got by that very fast. I got by that very fast. I had my first drink of alcohol, and God, did I feel at home. I felt real good with these people then. I felt like I was one of them, if not a little better than them. And... uh so that was my first drink of alcohol. I didn't go on to become a practicing alcoholic right away because circumstances didn't present themselves that way because eventually I went back to live in my hometown and uh, I got back in more of the circle of people that I was brought up with and uh, there wasn't a whole lot of drinking. At least the Baptists I knew didn't drink in front of one another. And uh, But in any event, I didn't become a real problem drinker right away, but any time that I drank, I drank to feel different. I never drank to be sociable. I drank so I could feel different and more at ease. I eventually uh, moved back out of this town to northern Quebec, which is an isolated um, village up in, uh, it was called Knob Lake at the time, Shrefferville, and uh, this was a very isolated situation. I worked for the Iron Ore Company of Canada, which was a subsidiary of the Iron Ore Company out of Cleveland, Ohio. And this town was not supposed to have any, it didn't have any open bars. But you would never go anyplace that there wasn't all kinds of booze. And it was a real alcoholic's paradise. And that's where my drinking really stepped up. It's not to say that I didn't at times get drunk before, but I, it was, Sporadic. I would, I would do it, then I would move back from it. But up in this town, I started to drink a lot. Because that was about the only thing there was to do. I went up there initially to, uh, make bigger money because they paid isolation pay and I wanted to travel. I always was curious about the other parts of the world. But when I got up there, I got into booze quite heavily. And I met the man that I married up there, and uh, we eventually moved back to uh, Montreal. I was married to a French-Canadian, and I am English-speaking Canadian. So that did for some uh, friction in families, if, if, if you all understand the situation. But in any event, I went to live in Montreal, and my husband was a fairly good drinker, but he he, he could handle his alcohol, and I could not. And it soon be, soon became very apparent that I was having trouble with alcohol. Uh, he worked a lot of shift works, and the days he would be out of an evening, and if I wasn't working, I would get drunk once or twice before he got back that evening. You know, I don't know if any of you can identify with this, but you drink, and then you fall asleep, and you get up, and you drink a little bit more, and have another little nap. But in any... <laughs> 
in any event, it started to become a problem in our in our home, and uh, he even had the nerve to speak to one of my sisters about my drinking, and um, of course they came to me and asked me if I thought I was having a problem with booze, of course I was on my best behavior when they were around, and I said, no, I didn't think so, and uh, oh, that was just his imagination, and of course, who do you think they believed? They believed uh, their baby sister, not that... French Canadian, she married. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thing is, that's the way it went. But it just became more of a problem. And uh, occasionally, Bob would say to me, "Say, if you think you need anything, if you think you need help with your drinking, we'll go and get you help." And of course, I would deny that I thought I had a drinking problem. I would lay off it for a while. And you know how you get restless, irritable, and discontent. If you're if you're not drinking and not going to meetings, I didn't know there was meetings in those times. And then I would get restless, irritable, and discontent, and we would go out and have a few drinks, and he would say, I will control the liquor. Well, everybody knows that if you're an alcoholic like me, once you give me a drink, there's nobody going to control my liquor. <laughs> and, you know, I went through all of the stages of alcoholism where I would go out socially, always have a drink before I left to go out because I was afraid they wouldn't have enough to keep it coming fast enough, you know. And I, I wanted to control it. So I usually had a good glow on before I got there. It got to the point that he wasn't talking about it anymore. He was leaving notes at the breakfast table. And, of course, I would take those notes and just throw them in the garbage. And I would take, you know, when I wasn't drinking, I would take the blame for anything. Just don't talk about my drinking, and I would put my head down and let them blame me, let them blame me for anything. But just keep off of the subject of my drinking. And I, that's the way I was. And that's the way it went on for several years. So one morning, I got an inspiration. I was driving out on the, at that point, I was working out on a, in a branch of the bank at the Trans-Canada Highway, and I was driving to work this morning, and I was hungover. And I just had this feeling that I wanted to be someplace, any place. I didn't know where I wanted to be, but I didn't want to be where I was at at that moment. And I felt like just hitting the accelerator and going. But my next thought was, your problem is your job. <laughs> that job is driving you crazy. You'd drink too if you had to put up what I had to put up with. My next thought was, I'm going to quit the job, and I'll be all right. So, <clears throat> with that much thought... I went in that day and gave my notice on a job that I had held for almost 10 years. I had about 10 years. And I thought when I got home that evening, I thought when I got home that evening, boy, something's going to hit the fan tonight when he finds out I give up all that security and everything. And he didn't react the way I expected. He said, if that's what you need to get your life in order, that's fine. That's fine. So I gave my 30 days notice and I quit the job. And then we planned on a vacation to Florida. And I had a lot of time on my hands after I quit that job in September. <laughs> and you know what happens to alcoholics who have a lot of time on their hands. It took me from September to December to get into AA. But that that fall, we came to uh, Fort Myers Beach on a vacation. 
And it was a fiasco the first couple of nights, uh, the first night especially. I don't even remember riding back to the hotel after we went out to a club for a drink. And uh, the next morning, it was the same old song and dance. The atmosphere was cold, and I got out before he woke up so I could walk to the beach. I wanted to be out of the place when he woke up, and I also wanted to look for a place where I could get a little fix in the morning, you know. I was a great believer on the hair of the dog that bit me. I really was, and then I would shake my head and get going again. But that morning I was having a hard time to find a place, and I can remember walking that beach, and I was sweating gumdrops. And it was all from the alcohol in my system, and I made a commitment to myself that morning that if I got through this one, <laughs> when I got back to Montreal, I was going to go for help. Now, I behaved myself pretty well for the rest of that vacation. So by the time I got back from Montreal, all was well again. So what did I do? I didn't go for help. Everything was fine. You know, I'd long forgotten. The atmosphere was good. But then the Christmas season came upon us, and uh, there was people sending uh, liquor to the house. At that time, my husband was under contract with the American consulate in uh, Montreal, and... Um, they were sending, and I had to test all this food, you know. After all, you just can't let anything come into your house and just put it away. And <laughs> one Sunday morning, I had been pretty drunk the night before. But one, uh, the following morning, we got up, and we were going to wallpaper a foyer coming into the apartment. And uh, so we started on our job, and all of a sudden... My husband said after, he said, I don't know how you got drunk that day. You weren't out of my sight for, for more than a couple of minutes at a time. Well, you know, him not being an alcoholic, he didn't realize that you don't have to be out of his sight very long. First of all, I had been so drunk the night before that that's all I had to do is take a drink of water and shake my head. And I was... But in any event, I got, I had a little stash in the lingerie drawer. I had a little stash in the hamper in the bathroom. And I said, so that day was terrible. It was terrible. I don't remember what the discussion was. The next morning I got up and he was gone to work. And I stood over my kitchen sink. And I did that for two reasons. I didn't know if I was going to be able to get, hold the glass steady enough to get the drink to my mouth. Secondly, I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep the drink down. And I was right in both counts. I could not do it. I don't know how or if I got a drink in me. More than likely, I took it directly from the bottle. But something came over me that morning. And I thought at the time, my God, what if your father walked in here today? What if your dad walked in? And my father had always been... Something very special to me in my life. I loved my father very, very dearly. And I always used to measure everything but what my father would think. And I thought, God, if he saw you today, wouldn't he be proud? And the next thing I thought of was, Faye, you're killing yourself. Because I had blood pressure problems, and I had worked for an attorney at one time whose wife had similar blood pressure problems. She took a slight stroke one morning, and she was an al active alcoholic at the time. And when the doctor came to attend her, he told her, whatever you do today, Mary, and don't you take a drink. She took a drink, and she died. 
And I didn't particularly like that lady. And I hadn't thought about her in years, but it was just all came in front of me that morning. I thought, that's the way you're going to end your life, like Marion, if you keep it up. I don't know how long I felt that way, but it was a certain sickness that I had. I had been physically as sick as I was that morning, and I had often been as emotionally unbalanced as I was that morning. But there was a certain other feeling, and I've learned to identify in it as a soul sickness that I had, and I was beside myself as to what I was going to do. But previous to this, there was a gentleman I knew who had been a friend of ours who was a very heavy drinker. Pierre had gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and had gotten sober. Not only the fact that Pierre was not drinking anymore that caught my attention was Pierre was not drinking anymore and Pierre appeared to be happy. And he was not shy when you asked him how he got that way to say how he got that way. He got it through Alcoholics Anonymous. That is why today I'm very, very, very careful who I tell that I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous because I may be the only big book they'll ever read. And I hope that when I say I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm a credit to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope when you say you're in in Alcoholics Anonymous that you're a credit because we may be the only big book that some poor suffering alcoholic will ever read. I always think... You know, we're one of the very lucky, very small percentage of people who need our program, who are guided to our program. In any event, I called Pierre that morning. Now, God was with me. That's why I say the grace of God was with me, because I didn't have the ability to make a rational decision that day. So something had to move me. He was home. I didn't know whether it was day or night. I dialed the phone and called Pierre. Now, he was home by accident. He had changed his shift with another man that day, and he happened to be home. And knowing the way I felt then, if I had not reached him on that first call, I probably never would have called again, because that was just something I thought of, I did, and if I hadn't made the connection, well, it wasn't meant to be. But Pierre was home that day, and I told him that I thought I was getting into real serious trouble with alcohol. And, of course, he was a nice guy, and he said, okay, I would have never thought it. But, you know, looking back on it now, he was just being nice because he always talks about AA in front of me. <laughs> so he said uh, he said something to the effect that he would send some women over to see me. And I said, oh, God, don't send any women here. I look awful, and the place looks worse, so... In any event, I said, but I'll go over and see you and your wife. His wife, Rosemarie, was also a friend of ours. So I, but I know what I wanted. I wanted to get out of the house before Bob got home. So I got on my coat, and it was cold. God, it was the 23rd of December in 1974. And it was cold up there. And I put my coat on, and I went over to his place, to Pierre and Rosemarie's. And I sat down and talked to him. I don't remember anything of the conversation. If I ran true to form, I probably, they probably tried to feed me something, and I probably did my little act of crying and said, you know, if I had a drink, maybe I could eat a little bit. <laughs> that was really my little act. But I don't remember that distinctly. And Pierre took me to my first AA meeting that night. It was in the basement of a church, 
And there was maybe as many people as there is here tonight. There were some big, large speakers meeting up there at that time. And uh, there was a guy by the name of Harry Spoke. And I was either half drunk or half sober. I don't know what, what condition I was in. But I knew that one minute I was sweating and the next minute I was freezing and I had a big fur coat on and it was terrible. Somebody offered me a... A cup of coffee, and at those times they served you coffee in China cups. I said, oh no. No, I wasn't taking any chances and trying to hold a cup and saucer. But in any event, there's a guy named Harry Spoke that night, and he talked about his trials and tribulations with alcohol, and I thought, and he was, he had a German accent. Now this was 1974, the war, the Second World War ended in 1945, and I kept thinking, you son of a gun of a German, no wonder, you know, you got what you deserve. I was, I was still, that was my, that was my attitude. Really, really, I was still fighting the Second World War. But I got to know Harry after that. We used to laugh about it. And I went, and I don't know if I really heard what Harry, what message Harry was trying to impart to me. Obviously, I got something enough to make me want to come back. And after the meeting, they usually had a social hour, because in large cities, how else are you going to get to know other alcoholics in the program? So they had this social hour, and Pierre sicked these two women on me. And I mean sicked them on me, because I couldn't move. There was one on either side. There was one on either side of me, and they kept asking me, and they gave me their phone numbers. And I gave them, like a fool, I gave them mine. <laughs> so the next morning, I went home that night, and Pierre and Rosemary came in and talked a while with Bob and I, and uh, I don't remember too much about it, but I, in any event, I went to bed. And you know how it is when you're coming off booze. You only sleep about 40 winks, and then you're up and down. Early the next morning, one of these ladies called. And she told me she had taken some time off for for her Christmas vacation and that she'd be at my disposal day or night but that she wasn't wasting her vacation talking to any drunks. In other words, don't call me if you're going to drink. And and, and I took that from her and I allowed her to say that to me. And then another girl, Judy, called and she talked to her about uh, how when she went to her first meeting she took her dog and they both fell into the basement of the church drunk because they were both drunk. And she told me about her stories about going down Broadway on a bicycle, getting fired from her job and not remember she got fired and go back to work the next night. So, <laughs> so, so that kind of lightened it up for me. You know, it kind of lightened it up. I thought, well, they're not all the strays. Straight as Bernadette, but uh, Judy's a little bit more relaxed about this. I, I hope I can reach a happy medium here. That evening, <laughs> that evening, my husband and I went to a, an open door meeting, sort of for in honor of Christmas Eve. We were going to leave the next morning to go to Quebec City to spend Christmas with my mother-in-law, and uh, we arrived a little late. We went with Rosemary and Pierre, and. We were standing against the wall like this, and there were some little groups meeting before the actual full meeting was to start. 
And as each one spoke and they said, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic, what was going through my mind was if I have to say that to stay here, I'll never stay. And what was going through my husband's mind, if she has to say that to stay here, she'll never stay. Because he knew what I thought, you know, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I don't know if anybody, you know, wants to grow up to be an alcoholic. I didn't know what one was, but I didn't want to be one. <laughs> so <clears throat> I uh, I made it through that evening and the next day. I went to Quebec and had a fairly nice Christmas, as as good as you can when you're two days sober. And uh, <laughs> two days sober and not allowed to drink anymore. And they're passing the wine in front of you. But that was no trick for me to stay sober for those few days because often when I got sick enough, I could stop drinking. But the trick was I couldn't stay stopped. And this was, and, and back in my mind someplace, I was thinking that this is fine. I'm doing fine. I'm not drinking today. But wait till I start to really feel good. Wait till I start to really feel good. I went back to Montreal. I like to tell you folks that Pierre took me to two meetings. After that, I was on my own to get to meetings. So if you really wanted, it's there. You can put the effort out. It's there. And I went to meetings in areas of the city I wasn't familiar with. In the daytime, my husband would drive around and show me where these different churches were. And in the evening, I would take off by myself and go to these meetings. And I was really taken up with you people in Alcoholics Anonymous. You all seemed to be happy, smiling, and you didn't feel the way I was feeling. And But I was still reluctant to believe that this was going to work for me because I kept thinking, but I had stayed away from booze this long before. I had, you know, stayed... One night I came to a meeting like this, an open speakers meeting, and there was a man by the name of uh, Paul spoke. I Probably somebody had told this to me before this time, but that was my night to listen. And Paul got across to me that my disease was a threefold disease. I was physically, spiritually, and mentally affected. And somehow or other that clicked with me. I thought, yes. There's more wrong with me than just craving the booze. There's something out of sync in my life. I'm just not balanced quite correctly. And the three sides of my nature just weren't balanced. And I, and he also went on to say that AA had the 12 steps of recovery to help people like he and I. And I started to pay more attention to them when they were reading the steps. I started to read the steps which were usually hanging at the building in the back of the hall or in the front of the hall. And I started to, somebody invited me to go to a step meeting once a week down in a different area of the city than I lived in, but these people offered to pick me up every Wednesday night. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion meetings in Montreal at that time, but I think God opened the door for me, and I started to go to step meetings, and I started to understand part of my problem. I got a sponsor. I used to go to her house every morning. She must have been sick of me, and I, there was nothing that I did not discuss with Margaret. We had nothing in common as, you know, she had a family. Her children went to work, uh, to school every morning. I was, there was just my husband and I. We had nothing in common, those things. 
But when it came to one-on-one about feelings and emotions of the alcoholic, Margaret was a marvel. She couldn't get up here and talk like this, but put her one-on-one with the person, and she really zeroed into people like me. And I started to understand part of my disease. She also used to always remind me, say, nothing is going to change but you. She used to say, Faye, I used to say, oh, well, if only, you know, if only people, places and things were different, I'd be all right. And she would repeat it to me very gently but very firmly. There's nothing going to change but you. If I would go to her and tell her that my husband said something that hurt my little feelings, she would say, that's all right, you're going to have to learn. You know, we alcoholics are sensitive. And... (laughs) And uh, so she she kept repeating this to me. And I started to grow a bit. I started to share. I started to go down to the intergroup in Montreal and answer the phones. And and I got really into the program. I often, um, my sponsor is Kitty C. from Fort Myers. And uh, her and I often say that we have one thing in common. We never fought the program. Once I realized what the program had to give me, I didn't fight it. I went right along with it, and I started to grow and started to feel more comfortable within myself. And then nine months after I was sober, we decided to move to Florida. And uh, I was just about nine months sober when we moved to Florida. My husband was due to retire, and we were coming to Florida to live. And uh, <coughs> I'm here to tell you, I thought... Florida, here I come. They haven't seen anything like me in AA down there. But <laughs> because I was one of these new AA people that was sure I had at least five years sobriety in five months, you know. I knew more about AA then than I do now. But that's all right. God loved them. The people put up with me, and, and, and they understood. And I came to Florida, and I didn't like the AA. I didn't like it. They weren't, you know, they they weren't making a big fuss over me like they did. I was a new kid on the block in Montreal, in my home group in Montreal, and and they were all looking after me. Down here, I was supposed to be well. I didn't come in and say that I wasn't well. I came in and said that I was great. And, uh, and And I didn't like the meetings, and I used to call Montreal, call Margaret, so at last she got sick of my belly aching. And she said to me, Faye, what are you giving to AA? in Florida. What are you doing? Are you putting your hand out? Are you telling these people how you're feeling? Well, of course not. You know, I'm nine months sober. I'm well. But, uh, so I, I had to reconsider that. So I started to tell people how I was feeling. And I started to put my hand out. And I started to join Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in Florida. Because I, I was afraid, because Margaret had told me before I left Montreal, whatever you do, don't stop going to meetings. I'd go to a meeting, I'd come home and I'd cry, and Bob would say, well, maybe next time you'll try another meeting. I, I'm sure sometimes he felt like saying, well, would you like to have a drink? Because <laughs> I was a mess. But in any event, I got through this. But you see, I was an alcoholic. Poor little old me. Nobody else had to make all these transitions. You know, when anybody else relocates from... Canada to Florida, there's, there's, takes a bit of adjusting, but I wallowed in it. 
I, I don't know if any of you understand what I'm talking about, but I did. But I also heard about the Florida Syndrome, and I saw several people come back after they had come to Florida to live and relocated and went out and drank again and then came back on their hands and knees. So I was still afraid enough that I kept coming to meetings. And then when Margaret laid the law to me and told me there was time that I put my hand out and started to uh, practice what Pierre had told me after I used to thank him for taking me to my first meeting, Pierre used to say to me, Faith, you can't keep it if you don't give it away. And I didn't understand what he meant then. I thought, well, maybe he's not too well yet, but, uh, you know, after all, you can't keep it if you don't give it away. So I started to become active. And I started to go to meetings where there was a lot of long-term sobriety. And I started to hold on to those people's coattails. That's why I asked Clancy and Ray tonight if they think, you know, like you read in the grapevine all the time about old-timers leaving the program, leaving the program, and maybe not going back to drinking, but just not coming to meetings anymore because they hear things in the meetings that they don't think is appropriate for Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, that worries me because that's who I held on to at the beginning of my sobriety. It's people who had long-term sobriety. You know, they used to say, stick with the winners, and... uh if we don't have any winners or people with long-term sobriety come into the meetings, what are the new folks going to do? And that's a true concern of mine because uh, I would hate to think that somebody came and they didn't, and they could not get the help that I got when I came here. I started to get active in service. I uh, became a GSR for my home group. Not because of anything great I did or anything. It's just because nobody else wanted to do it. And I started to go to quarterlies, and that's where I met Dick and his wife and all the people I know around the state of Florida. And, I, and you know, I got real inspired with some of the speakers I used to hear at these conventions and these quarterlies. And I um, really try to go back and tell people in Fort Myers, you know, you don't know what you're missing. And my sponsor always says it's the icing on the cake when you get to come to these conventions and these these quarterly meetings and these sponsorship weekends. And when, soon after, I chose another sponsor in Fort Myers, and the lady is still my sponsor today. She would have been here tonight, but her health is not as good as it used to be, and these little trips are a little difficult for her. And uh, But I still keep in contact with her. I'm a great believer, and I'm still with the same home group that I, that I joined when I came to Florida. I'm a great believer in the home group and sponsorship, because I know that I could not have made it without it. There's no way that if I did not have somebody that I could cling to, that I would have ever made it. And, you know, you just keep hanging on, and things just keep changing and happening. And I started to get this, these good feelings, these feelings of, that I was always wanted in my life, these feelings of serenity and peace. And of course, you know, I'd get a few seconds of it and I wanted more. And I would talk to, uh, my sponsor's husband was, uh, very inspirational and talking to me about spiritual things. And I said to him one night, I said, Jay, you know, I get these good feelings sometimes that I'm at peace and I'm at one with the world, 
But I would like to have more of it. And, you know, being an alcoholic, you get a little bit of it, you want more. And he kept telling me, well, say you're pushing too hard. Just take it easy. And it's true. I look back on it today. It just happens. It just happens. I'm not a great speaker in AA, but I love, I'm a talker. I love to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I could talk about Alcoholics Anonymous till the cows come home because I'm so grateful for AA. During my first stints in uh, general service and going to these quarterlies, I used to be inspired by three ladies that used to travel together from Miami. It was Harriet and Lenore and uh, Joe. And at that time, Joe used to be after me to see if I could help her daughter in uh, Fort Myers because she thought her daughter had a drinking problem. So once in a while, her daughter would make an appearance at meetings. But I felt that if I went on too strong with the daughter, I would push the daughter away. Because if somebody had done that to me when I was still drinking, I would have gone further away. So for years, I watched this young lady come to AA and leave and come back. And she was a very beautiful girl. So if you saw her once, you remembered her. And her mother used to always be questioning me when I'd go, do you see Joanne at meetings? Do you see her? And I'd say, occasionally. And then her mother would say to me, but Joanne took, picked up her chip for X number of years or whatever. And I thought, well, I don't really don't think so, but I'm not going to dispute this. But in any event, a little over five years ago, Joanne did come to AA and stayed. And about a year ago, a little over a year ago, she asked me to be her sponsor. And uh, since that time, Joanne has, some, has run into some very, very serious health problems. And uh, for a while this spring, it went into remission, but yesterday she got some bad news again. And you know, what makes me feel so great about this is her mother inspired me and in her illness, Joanne always says she feels better if I'm around. Now, I'm not a great, I'm not a great caregiver. But the only thing I give to Joanne is the love that was given to me when I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what it's all about. Just people loving one another and expecting nothing in return. And for somebody to say that they feel better when they're around me, is truly a miracle of God, because most people didn't want to be around me before. And my program today is basically acceptance of life, of life and life's terms. Three years ago, this coming month, I lost my husband. He had had heart problems for years, and then he had a bad summer that year, and he passed away. And I don't know what I would have done without the people in AA. There's two of the ladies here tonight with me that stuck by me very closely during that time. There's a gentleman who had been through what I had been through, who talked to me a lot and kept telling me, Faye, you're not as well as you think you are over all of this. And you know, these are things that only you can only get from the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because... At work, they wanted to help, too, and my boss arranged for me to see the chaplain at the hospital where I worked, 
And I started to talk to him, and he wanted me to go to these grief meetings, and I went once to people like, and I came out and I told him, I said, Reverend Blunt, I have to tell you something. I can't handle these type of meetings, but there, <laughs> there are some meetings that I go to that give me what I need every day. And so I told him I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he just thought that was wonderful. And he knew something about the program. And that that has been great for me. And now today, if I can be of any comfort to anyone else, I sponsor a lot of girls. You know, some of them I sponsor for a while, and they go away. Then I get to be friends, and they come back. That's the way it works in AA. And uh, I have never given anything out in AA that I didn't get it back tenfold. These girls are an inspiration for me. They keep me young and on my toes. They keep me thinking fast, because you have to. And, uh, but I get much more out of it than they do, folks. And that's the way it works. So basically today, acceptance is the answer to all my problems. I accept life on life's terms. Sometimes I will fight it off a little bit, but I, I give in easier than I used to. <laughs> I found out that the, that it works better that way. So life has been good to me, and I'm grateful. And I would like to close with my favorite passage from the big book. And it's, uh, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact in my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitude. Thank you very much. I love you and good night.